Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Chris Barnwall of CBS Sports. He covers the NBA for CBS Sports, and he is also a former Hornets blogger at Rufus on Fire and at The Hive. And uh, I think he's particularly apt to be a uh, to discuss Dwight Howard and the Dwight Howard trade today, because not only did he used to write about the Hornets, but you're an Orlando resident. Is that correct? You've spent a lot of your life in Orlando. My entire life has been in the Central Florida area. Yes. Oh, nice. So, so you you're quite familiar with the uh, the artist who is Dwight Howard. Is that correct? More than I'd like to be. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the, we the are battle, gonna... the battle scars from the Dwight Mayor is still there. Oh wow. So we will get into uh, the Dwight Howard uh, Hawks Hornets trade in a bit. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you a couple of things about the draft because we're recording on Friday morning. Uh, both a little groggy from staying up till one or two in the morning trying to cover that thing. So, what did you yeah, think? It was a long one. <laughs> what did you think about the Jimmy Butler trade? I thought it was weird because <laughs> mainly I never thought that Tom Thibodeau and the Bulls would ever work together to do that. Like, do you remember last year when they were so close to pulling off like three trades, and then it turned out that they were really just being petty and leaking things to each other that they really didn't care about? <laughs> like that was how that turned out. So when I saw the Butler to the Wolves rumors pop up again, I was like, "Oh, they're just doing it all over again." But no, then they actually worked out a deal, which was surprising. And unlike what a lot of other people think, if the Bulls are going to ha- had to trade Butler like they thought they did, I don't really feel like they had to, but because they did, I don't think it was the worst return haul. I really like Zach Levine. I think he's going to be awesome. And I am probably one of the few people that was actually kind of high on Laurie Markkanen, Markkanen out of uh, Arizona. Okay. So do you do you think that was a fair return? Like, do you think that it was that they needed to put in a pick? <laughs> yeah, they couldn't just well, get seven was outright. The, that was you... one part. That was one part of it. Like, I don't like that they passed on number sixteen, or that they gave up number sixteen. They did the pick swap, right? I thought they very easily could have avoided doing that because if you're trading a super, like you never get good return of a superstar. Like that's one thing we have to kind of accept when you're trading a superstar player like Jimmy Butler is you are not going to get a good return on him. Sure. That said, like there are some things you can avoid giving up and your draft pick is one of them. Like you should, especially when you're the team that has the guy for a long-term contract, like Chicago has all the leverage in these talks. Yet they chose to give up a draft pick that, that I did not like at all. But as far as like player return, I think Markkanen and Levine are going to add some three point shooting that they need. They're both young. They that could start something new for the Bulls and get them away from that ugly basketball style that they've been known for for years. Which I would be very pl- pleased with that. But we'll have to just see how it works out. But I'm also notoriously positive on trades, so. <laughs> I mean, this could all blow up and I'll look like crazy later. And do you have any concern at all about the fact that they sent away Butler with two years left on his deal, but got Levine with only one left sort of coming off an injury? That's a little weird, but I think Levine will be fine. His game wasn't, I know everyone knows his game is based off athleticism and the fact that he dunks really hard. (laughs) <laughs> but he's also a really good three-point shooter. A lot of his game was based yes. on the perimeter and the pick-and-roll and spotting up like and do it, going off cuts. 
I don't think he's going to be that affected by the fact that he might lose a little bit of athleticism because he wasn't an athleticism-reliant player. He might not dunk as hard, and he might not jump as high, but really that doesn't affect the fact that he's still a great, that he's still a very good player in what he does. Okay. Well, I was disappointed in another move that the Bulls made. Uh, in the second round, I was uh, hoping, hoping, hoping for Jordan Bell of the Oregon Ducks to fall to the Hawks at 41. He was slipping, he was slipping, he was slipping, and then I think it was at 38, the Bulls took him, and it gradually came out, you know, exactly what happened. First it was, okay, the Bulls have traded him to the Warriors. The Warriors bought the pick. The Warriors bought the pick for $3.5 million. Uh, Do you think they have something there? Jordan Bell from he almost won a national championship by practically exclusively guarding the rim. Like <laughs> I don't know how good of an NBA player he'll be because he did end up in the second round, so clearly like he's not a generational talent. But he's clearly very good. He's clearly very good among his peers. And that someone like that just gets to end up on one of the best organizations in the NBA right now, it's just it feels unfair. It it reminds us of when like the Lakers used to get a random steal back in the old days. It's like, really? <laughs> they get this too? Like, maybe he doesn't work out. I think he will work out just fine. I don't think he's going to become the next Draymond Green, but I bet he becomes a rotation player. We'll be like, oh, well, remember how they bought in on him when the Bulls just took cash from him? That was fun. <laughs> not, not that they – they did put a dis- decent amount of money. Like, $3.5 million is not a small chunk for just buying a draft pick, a second-round pick, no less. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a small amount, but if you look at it from the Warriors' perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, they're a team that in the very near future is going to be experiencing life in the deep, deep luxury tax and repeater tax. And so, you know, to sort of pay $3.5 million up front for a guy that you probably think is NBA-ready and to get him at what he's going to get being a second-round pick, that 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 amount of money that they're going to pay for him is going to be a reasonable fee as opposed to trying to get a player of similar talent, you know, through free agency or some other means. Right, and they can develop him a little more because, well, these NBA-ready players come in, like, ready to kind of make some sort of an impact. They're typically not, like, immediately ready. They usually still have to go through some of the rookie process. Sure. NBA-ready more means, like, they'll catch on a little quicker than, say, a, a 19-year-old. Right. And... That's something he's probably going to do. Like, I don't know if he'll be in the Warriors rotation next year, but the year after that, sure. Like, why not? He'll have been studying the NBA for a year. He'll have probably worked out a little, slimmed down from being on an actual diet and not a college diet of uh, booze and Cheetos. <laughs> Wait, what do you know about that? <laughs> I mean, that, I'm not saying that as a recent college graduate, I understand the college graduate's lifestyle of uh, – eating McDonald's every other, every couple days, but just, I'm saying, like, booze and Cheetos, it's a great midnight snack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's, you know, like you said, he might not happen in the first year, but at some point in whatever deal they sign him to, I think they're going to kind of get a player who's sort of in between what they got from JaVale and James Michael McAdoo. You know, somebody who can protect the rim, but not suck at pick-and-roll defense. You know, right, like the rim protection is a big thing too. Yeah, like you know, the reason they couldn't play Javale was because you know when he was out there in pick and roll defense, he was just a sieve. But I think Bell is going to be much better at that, and at the same time, he's going to protect the rim more than some of the other players the Warriors used when they wanted somebody out there who could defend the pick and roll. It's funny. Last year's arguably the best team ever because of Kevin Durant. But a serious case can be made that that first Warriors team in 2015 is their most complete team because that team not only had the incredible offense, but was the best defense in the NBA, like, by far. They were an incredible defense. Mm -hmm. And then the second year where they won 73 games, they weren't as great. I don't know if that was because of injuries or fit or the fact that they were like, we don't have to play defense because we're just outscoring everyone. And then last year, if there was one weakness that you could find, it was like, they didn't really have that much rim protection, in my opinion. Kevin Durant and Draymond Green kind of provided it. Right. But, like, they didn't have that traditional big guy that could protect the rim. I think Jordan Bell can do that for them. While also, like like you said, eventually developing into a decent pick-and-roll defender. Yeah, and I mean, 
And the funny thing, and this is probably getting too far afield, and it's kind of just a crazy theory of mine, but you know, watching Draymond in the playoffs, like he's a great defender, so he's going to play good defense no matter what. But I kind of felt like his defense slipped a little bit from the last couple of years, especially with regard to rim protection. And you'd see him on the bench with like, you know, that heat girdle or whatever it was that you, he puts around his back. I don't think he was as good defensively as he was the previous two postseasons, and that's kind of scary. Like, could, can they get better? Like, if he goes and plays the kind of defense he played a couple of seasons ago because he's feeling better next postseason, that just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> that would right? be terrifying if Draymond Green somehow got better because for a long time I've argued that he's one of the like, he's one of the best players in the NBA just because of his versatility. Like, defensively, he's a monster. Offensively, when he has a go, like he, or my coworker Matt Moore, like makes a case a lot of the time that he basically is the best passer on the Warriors. I don't know if I agree with that, but like certainly out of the high post, like his value there is just incredible. Like he can pass; he's a decent shooter, not the best shooter. I think if you had to pick someone to shoot on that in that Warriors starting lineup, you usually go with him. But like. That's just kind of the one of those terrifying things about him. If like he becomes an even better defender, like it's like, how do you stop this team? Uh, <laughs> I guess we already might be asking, how do we stop this team? Even if he's not, a, if he stays at the same level. Well, that's a good segue because, you know, for years and years, uh, the Hawks had Al Horford, and he was outstanding as a passer on the short roll, like Draymond. And this season, it didn't go as well for them. <laughs> they have Dwight <laughs> Howard, and they they tried Dwight Howard a little bit as uh, as you know a pick and roll player, and you know to see what he could do as a passer in their offense if he was passing in those pick and roll plays, and it didn't really work very well. And I think that was one of the things that that eventually led to the trade of Kyle Korver because Korver wasn't really having a season anything like his other seasons that he had in Atlanta. And I think part of that was because, you know, with Schroeder and Howard, they didn't have the ball movement needed to get him open in the situations like he had been open in the previous three or four seasons. Uh, so we need to talk about this Dwight Howard trade. <laughs> Wait, there was a Dwight Howard trade? There was a Dwight <laughs> Howard trade. It that was the big... Yeah, so, you know, to, to recap the trade, the Hawks got Marco Bellinelli. They got Miles Plumley, and we're going to ask you about those two players a bit. They got the number 41 pick, all right? And um, the Hornets got Dwight Howard and the number 31 pick. So, you know, just for starters, uh, what do you think the ho- what do you think the Hornets can get out of Dwight? What the Hornets can get out of him really depends on what version of Dwight Howard they're getting, because. Atlanta on Dwight Howard was the exact example of what can happen if he doesn't fit. He was not a terrible player in Atlanta. Like, if you look at his numbers, he was a, like, he put up his similar production that he usually puts up with, like, a slight drop in scoring. He was a fine player. He pulled down rebounds. He played what he was good at defensively, he was still good at. When he is playing in the pick and roll, he's still a very good scorer. The problem is that there's a weird fit between, like, how Atlanta wanted to play, how he wanted to play. I think there was some behind-the-scenes issues that I heard about that might have played into it as well. Just the fit was never really quite there. So, and when uh, Dwight Howard doesn't fit on a team, this is his biggest issue. It just, it goes horribly wrong. It all blows up. <laughs> like, it doesn't just affect Dwight Howard. It affects the entire team as a whole. And that's always been one of his biggest issues. When Dwight Howard's not happy, no one is happy. And that's kind of an issue because Dwight Howard isn't happy all the time. So if the Hornets get that, like, it could go south very quickly where it's like, great, now we have this big guy who has two years left on his contract who just never plays the way we want him to. That said, the coach they have is a former coach of Howard's in both Orlando and Los Angeles, Steve Clifford. And Steve Clifford's, in my opinion, one of the best coaches if not a top five coach in the NBA. He's incredible at what he does. And he he has the ability to get the best out of Dwight Howard, both offensively and defensively. And the fact that, like, especially defensively, because Dwight Howard's still a solid defender. He's not what he used to be, but he's still a solid defender. 
Clifford made Al Jefferson look into a not terrible defender when he was in Charlotte. <laughs> right. And anyone that's watched Al Jefferson knows that he is not a good defender. Like, sure. Not at all. So having a guy that actually is a good rim protector and rebounder is going to be huge for Charlotte. Now, offensively, it'll be a lot of what he's willing to do. He's probably still going to get some of those post touches that are really annoying. But they will, as long as he's willing to set screens and roll to the basket, Steve Clifford will be happy because that's what he really wants in his big guys. He wants them to be mobile. And if Howard realizes that he needs to be a little more mobile and a little less, like, stand-around-ish, which he does a lot of when he gets frustrated for some reason, mm-hmm. like, he could work out and he could work out great for Charlotte. Like, this fit could be perfect. His play style matches exactly what they usually want in their bigs. Just he needs to actually play it. Yeah, I mean, I think Budenholzer is a great coach, and I think Clifford is a great coach. And we're going to hear some interesting audio from, from Clifford in a little bit. But when you look at their two styles, you know, Budenholzer is trying to emphasize, you know, pace and space and ball movement and tempo and, you know, all those sorts of things. And you look at Clifford and it's, you know, it's about defensive rebounding. Like that's one of the hallmarks of his teams is that it's always one of the best rebounding teams. You know, they're going to protect the rim. They're not necessarily going to, you know, be one of the faster teams in the league. That's not really his sort of thing. Is that fair to say? Right. That's correct. Basically, what Clifford values is he thinks steals are overrated. He thinks offensive rebounds are overrated. He just wants to play fundamental – well, not fundamental. He wants, to, he wants to play – you could almost call it safe basketball. Right. He's very – like there's that old – remember when the Celtics came onto the scene, the old 2008 ones, and like it, they shocked everyone by completely abandoning offensive rebounds to get back on defense. Like, oh, my God, this is genius. Why did we never think of this before? <laughs> like he takes that and – he takes that and cranks it up to 11. Like the Hornets never offensive rebound. Like – they have Michael Kid Gilchrist do it sometimes because he's athletic enough to actually make some cause some havoc there. But typically, they all run back. So like he never does that. They never play for steals. They play a very conservative style of defense. Like that's their style. So right. I agree completely. Like that they just they don't pick up the pace because it's like they prefer to play this conservative, uh, move the ball kind of style and like rely on their defense to get to win games. So yeah, it's just kind of sit back, make sure you're you got everything covered on defense and and try to grab a rebound after a miss do you think that they have to change their approach right, to they offensive? want to force misses not turnovers do you think they have to change their offensive rebounding approach because that's the one thing that howard is absolutely great at and transition defense isn't yes and no i think they're gonna need to they need to change up the defense a little because well, they've always had one of the best defenses in the NBA last year, and he talked about this in that audio file you sent me. Um, last year, he really noticed, and I think the really the Hornets in general noticed this, with the uptick in three-point shooting, their defensive style kind of got exposed a little. Charlotte's always been a team that leaves their perimeter guys out on an island. Like, they just leave them alone. They expect them to play good, solid defense. But they're always willing to sag in and help inside. Mm-hmm. With a rim protector like Dwight Howard, they might be able to do that a little less. Okay. And that might help them defend three-point shooting more. And if they're defending three-point shooting better, they also might be able to uh, change up their style with rebounds more to where they can be like, okay, since we have that rim protector in Dwight Howard, we can let him stay. We can let him stay back on offense a little and get back and pull down offensive rebounds as long as he's willing to sprint back down. Like that's a huge thing. <laughs> like he needs to be able to get back quickly, which Charlotte's defense can contain that, but he can't just hang out. He can't be coming back with like 10 seconds left on the shot clock, which oh, that sure. happens sometimes in Atlanta, which that's never a good thing. Yeah, he had he had issues in transition defense at times. And you mentioned before, it's like you know, those post-ups are annoying. But I mean, my, my approach to the season was you know, they'd been swept by Cleveland the last two postseasons. And the thing that absolutely massacred them in those rebounds against Cleveland was, yeah, they just couldn't get a defensive rebound. And so, you know, it's like Howard can do whatever he wants just as long as in the postseason, you know, he shows up and, and grabs a rebound. And then the postseason rolled around and it didn't go it didn't go great for Dwight, right? So in between oh, the regular horribly. Yeah, in between the regular season and the postseason, like in the three days or four days or whatever it is between, you know, game 82 and then game one of the playoffs he changed agents and then oh God, I forgot about that yeah and then the 
the Hawks got into that series against the Wizards, and one of the problems was, you know, they weren't playing very good transition defense. John Wall's really fast, which made Dwight Howard look really slow in transition defense. Like, he just was, couldn't get back on any of those types of plays. And as a result, the Hawks were behind in games, and when they were behind in games, they wanted to play Howard even less, especially in the fourth quarters when they were trying to make comebacks and generate points. And, you know, that generated this whole vicious cycle of he was playing less and unhappier with it. And so in his exit interview, he expressed that sort of displeasure. And then in May, 40 days after changing agents, in the first year of a three-year contract, he changed agents again. I don't even know who his agent is this time. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I don't even know how to say this, but, uh, you know, what do you think about just sort of Dwight Howard's fit from a personality standpoint? From a personality standpoint? Yeah. Well, I first want to mention Atlanta. I kind of agree with you with the sense that I was was in the camp of I'm willing for, for Atlanta to take this risk on Dwight Howard in that first year they had him. Because I think they looked at the fact that they were the second-best team in the East two years in a row behind sure. Cleveland. Like, I know they weren't the second-best team by record in last year. Or not the – we're in that transition you. period where it's really weird. In that season where uh, Toronto won more games. Sure. They weren't the best team that year. Or they weren't the best team record-wise that year. But I think, like, play style-wise, they were definitely the second-best team in the East. And even though they got swept by Cleveland again, I think they looked at that and said, okay, we've been the second-best team in the East each year. What is our issue? We can't rebound against this team. What if we go? What if we take a risk and look for and trade Jeff Teague, give the keys to Dennis Schroeder, maybe he blows up. That obviously didn't work out. And go find a better rebounder in Dwight Howard who can hopefully pull down some rebounds, and then we'll try to build around that. Obviously, it didn't work, but at least they took a risk. And sure. sometimes taking a risk is better than playing safe. Obviously, colossally blew up in the worst way possible. But I was okay with them taking that risk, but now it's obvious that they have to, like, move away from that. And on his personality with, uh, so obviously his personality didn't work with Atlanta. Personality with Howard is a really weird thing because in Los Angeles it was terrible, and Orlando it worked great until it didn't. And in Houston, a lot of people blame him for what happened there, but it really wasn't his fault. Like, there were some internal issues with him and James Harden, but... That happens on every team. There's always disagreements between players. I don't think it was the big. It was this huge issue to where Howard completely tanked the entire team. I think it was just the Rockets in general were all miserable with each other, <laughs> and they needed a culture change. Right. And James Harden wasn't happy. Howard wasn't happy. Which meant the entire rock, roster wasn't happy. The coaches weren't happy. So they had to go. They just had to do a whole culture change there. But before that, like, before that one horrible season, like, and it worked for the most part, like, personality-wise. Like, he wasn't that big of an issue. He really hasn't been, like, is he the most stable player personality-wise? No, but he's not the terrible, he's not blowing up teams every other year and, like, putting up towel forts in locker rooms. Like, he's just kind of annoying. Right. If you get past the fact that he's kind of annoying, it works, but it just and Steve Clifford might be able to get past that because, like I said, he coached him before. He understands how Howard works. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, he he had to, you know, he went to Los Angeles to play with Kobe. He went to Houston to play with Harden. And, you know, those situations weren't necessarily ideal for him. I don't think that it was that bad of a fit personality-wise in Atlanta. I think it was more a case of, you know, he's a proud guy, and he wanted to play, but his style just didn't fit Budenholzer's style. And when he didn't play, especially in the playoffs, that that just, you know, didn't sit well. And, you know, he, he changed agents before the playoffs, so maybe there was something itching there. But, you know, I don't, I don't think he was a bad fit personality-wise. I think he's been in a bad situation all along. There was this thing in March where – you know, people started asking him questions about the Hall of Fame. You know, do you think you're a Hall of Famer? And there was this discussion about what, whether or not Dwight's a Hall of Famer. Dwight's a Hall of Famer. Of course he is. I mean, look at three his Three-time defensive record. player of the year. <laughs> like, three straight times defensive player of the year. One of the led Orlando Magic team to the finals in 2009. Should have won MVP in 2011. One of the most incredible players I've ever seen in the pick and roll when he was still healthy and didn't have that back injury. Like, 
Yes, he's a Hall of Famer. First ballot, yeah, maybe not, probably not because of the second half of his career, but yes, he should go to the Hall of Fame. His credentials speak for themselves. He's a great player. Like, this this isn't even a discussion. Yeah, it's silly. Like, Mitch Richmond's in the Hall of Fame. Come on. Dwight Howard is going to be in the Hall of Fame. Stop asking him dumb questions. And that's the thing, like, you know, I say this about Chris Humphreys, too, but you have to take into consideration, like, the whole picture. Like, you... When, when Chris Humphreys goes into the arena, people are always saying stupid, miserable, awful things to him. And so, you know, he kind of, you know, even with, like, the people who are around the Hawks on a day-to-day basis, he kind of goes into a shell a little bit and doesn't want to talk. You know, Dwight gets asked so many stupid questions. Like, there was there was the day when uh, Phil Jackson and Jeannie Buss, you know, called it off. Were they engaged or dating? I don't know what it was. And the Knicks were in town, and so the New York media asked Dwight, you know, what do you think about Phil and Jeannie breaking up? And, you know, what does that have to do with Dwight Howard? He was in L.A. for, what, one season? (laughs) Yeah, and uh, Phil Jackson wasn't even there when he was there? Yeah, I I don't even know. Yeah, right. Like, Jackson wasn't even coaching. No, it was Clifford. Or, no, it was um, D'Antoni with Clifford. It was Mike D'Antoni. Actually, it was Mike Brown, and they fired him really fast. Oh, (laughs) Okay. That was oh man, that was a year. But yeah, <laughs> so I mean, they had Mike Brown and they fired him, and then they went to Antonio. So like you know, you you look at Dwight and like he was he was great with the community. He was great with the city of Atlanta, and you watch him interact with fans. He was great with fans, but he just you know because he has a high high profile, he had to deal with so much you know baggage and leftover crap that was kind of just put under his nose on a day-to-day basis and you can see how that would get kind of irksome after a while but right like and some of that's his fault or the fact that like he created a lot of this himself with the way he's acted some of the things he said like but i wrote about d'angelo russell the other day and how when he was in los angeles and how he was doomed the second he got in a feud with byron scott because when that happened he got a label attached to him and when you get a label attached to you in the NBA, it is one of the hardest things to ever get rid of. And Howard attached a label to him when he feuded with Stan and Gunny, got him fired, got himself traded out of Orlando, and then immediately went to L.A. and started feuding with people there. Like, he also became a locker room cancer kind of problem. <laughs> and even if he's not this huge issue anymore, he still has that label. And the fact that everywhere he goes, there seems to be personality issues, like, Everyone always points to him. And it might not be his fault, and it might not entirely be about him, but because of the fact that there's a label attached to him, he will always receive questions about it, and he will always receive, like, situations, and he will always be put in situations where it's like, oh, is Dwight Howard acting up again? Like, that is just something that will always be attached to him until he can finally shake off that label, because labels do not go away until, like, you prove that they can go away. And it's hard, yeah, you just can't outrun it. Like, it's just, people are going to constantly bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. So, you know, the other thing about Dwight is, like, the league just, it's not a league of big men anymore. So, you know, normally if you look over NBA history, you know, you look at players like, oh, I don't know, like Kareem or Walt Bellamy or, you know. It was built on two big men, Wilton, Wilton Bill. Yeah, well, you know, Bill Russell and, you know, some of those players, you know, had pretty good careers start to end. But, you know, for some other players, like let's say Moses Malone or Walt Bellamy, like there was a big drop off in their in the cor- over the course of their careers. You know, they would have, you know, 17, 18 year careers, but they would get by the last seven or eight years just on sheer size, you know. They could play kind of a plodding low post game, you know, grab some rebounds, be a good rebounder. But, you know, with limited athleticism in their older years, they could still kind of get by. It's not like that anymore. So, you know, it's not just that Dwight's gotten older. He's gotten older in a league where the style and I would say like the refereeing even just doesn't favor the big man at all. I mean, they'll call touch fouls 25 feet from the basket. But, you know, when you're the big guy, trying to do stuff in the posts you know you it's kind of it's kind of rough down there like it's just they've that's what they gotta fix yeah because 
in the NBA Finals, LeBron would post up smaller guys, and you could tell he got he got concerned about getting a foul called on him when posting up, and he wouldn't push as hard. Every time he got a smaller guy switched onto him, like that is something they, I really wish they would work on because there's nothing more infuriating than when a small guy gets bumped once and flops and immediately gets the call. <laughs> yeah, and, and I asked Dwight about that once, and you know you could tell he was frustrated. You know, it, it, it's. You know, he's a proud guy, and he should be a proud guy because he's had an amazing career, but he has to sort of deal with sort of this triple attack of, one, his skills are eroding, two, the league has completely changed over the course of his career, and, you know, the third part being that he can't outrun the mistakes that he made in his past, and, you know, all those things just kind of, you know, chip away at, you know, just what it is he wants to do because I think he has the right intentions but those three things make it really hard agree completely alright so can I ask you about Miles Plumley and Marco Bellinelli let's talk about Miles Plumley and Marco Bellinelli is there a lot to say <laughs> Marco Bellinelli was surprisingly good last year he was like is he going to change a team no but you can expect a couple three-pointers from him every night and not the best defense in the world, but that's fine. He's Marco Bellinelli. Like, anyone that's expecting him to be the next Kyle Korver is going to be sorely disappointed, but <laughs> okay. he is probably one of the better three-point shooters on the Hawks, and that's a good thing because for, for a while now, the Hawks have been a three-point shooting team that can't shoot three-pointers. Right. Miles Plumley is... Uh, a really bad contract and a solid player who is kind of plagued by a really bad contract. Okay. So, you know, what? what's his ideal role? How often do you watch the Hornets? I watched a lot of the Bucks two years ago. And, on, you know, the Hornets may be in this last season not as much. And it seemed, you know, in the Hornets games that, that I did watch, I, you know, maybe he wasn't playing. I know he was injured some. Well, so he, I don't he was feel injured like I saw, for most of the season. Yeah, so I don't feel like I, I saw say, a lot of him in, in Charlotte. But I do feel like I saw a lot of him in Milwaukee the, the previous year. I was going to compare him to the way Charlotte uses Cody Zeller, which is kind of a chaos player in that he just kind of runs around everywhere. You know, off-ball cuts, set screens, catch lobs, you know, <laughs> do all that. Screens. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot of moving screens. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Everyone, everyone be setting moving screens these days. <laughs> yeah, so like that's what I think that that's how I think Charlotte should use him just as a very mobile big man center. Like he's not going to be. That's one thing that'll be useful. Well, Dwight Howard's kind of big and plodding and plods around and is like slow and it's kind of slow these days. Plumlee is going to run. He's going to like sprint in half court sets like. That's what you really want from him. You want him to go like rim run. You want him to go set up moving screen. <laughs> you want him to you want him to go commit a foul. You want him to go run hard off and help and go commit a hard foul if he needs to. Like that's really what you want those guys to do. Which that's how Cody Zeller plays a lot in Charlotte, and I think that's what they were kind of looking for in Plumlee. The problem is he was hurt all the time, so they never really got a chance to use him. And I still I think Plumlee's a pretty solid player, but. He was so hurt in Charlotte that it just never worked out. And when Charlotte had a chance to dump him and the contract off, they didn't they didn't pass on it. So I think Atlanta can find some good uses out of him because he'll be able to do a little bit more what Charlotte or what Atlanta wanted Dwight Howard to do. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that that Mike Budenholzer really likes, and you know, I don't know what the personnel will be. You know, whether Paul Millsap will be back or. Mike Muscala will be back. But one of the things that he really likes to do when he's behind is go small and basically, you know, either play without a center or, you know, play with bigs who can really space the floor, shoot threes. And, you know, he's, you know, a guy like Plumlee in those situations, you, if, if Mike Budenholzer is behind by 10 points in the second half, that's typically not a person who is going to see the court. Is he the type of person who can handle that situation where if he gets a DMP or if he doesn't play much in the second half, he can handle that well? And is there a value to that? Because like, I know for Dwight, that was an issue, I think. Oh, yeah, he'll, he won't have any issues uh, sitting on the bench in the fourth quarter. Like, <laughs> like, he barely played last year, even 
like obviously those injuries, but if he has to be a bench guy, he'll be a bench guy. If he has to be a starter, he'll be a starter. He's one of those guys who just he doesn't really complain about his role very much, and that'll be useful for Atlanta because if they need him to play forty minutes a night, oh, on one night he can do that. If they need him to play only twenty the other night, he can do that. And at least publicly, he's not going to complain about it. You'll just be you'll have a lot of angry fans who are like, "How are we paying this guy this much money to play twenty minutes in a night?" Is like, well, he played well, so that's really all we want from him. Okay. Well, very good. Um. I want to play this clip from Steve Clifford now, and this is probably the longest clip that we've ever just plugged in willy-nilly on the podcast, but it was it was something that Steve Clifford said in the, his pregame media session before game 82, and I think he was in sort of a philosophical mode, and you know he was talking about a lot of things, sort of big picture, with regard to the NBA. And so I, I think it makes for some very interesting discussion. And I've edited the audio a little bit to just sort of put three questions together into one because it was kind of all on the same theme. So I'm just going to play it uh, as a whole here, and then we can get into some of it. Sound good? Sounds great. All right, here we go. Coach, you said that the, you thought the league changed more this year than any other year. What do you think changed about the league? Well, off the top of my head, again, without studying, I think that uh, I, I think this is true. I think if you look at offensive efficiency, I think this is the, uh, I think it may be the highest in NBA history, points per possession. And when you think about how defenses have changed over the years, um, you know, if you look back, say, you know, a few years ago, like when I was in high school and college, this was very much a fast break league. I mean, you watch uh, on, uh, you know, like on the NBA TV, the, like the great games, those Celtics-Lakers games, every game is 125-122, and it was a constant three-on-two, you know, where uh, great teams, great players, but much, much less half-court defense and much less of the game, number of possessions in the game, where they were attacking a set defense. So if you think about now the way defenses are, and this is, you know, I'm just saying, like I know Pat Riley would say that what's improved most in this league are the defensive concepts from that time. The defense is much better and harder to play against. And now for the offensive efficiency to be at an all-time high uh, just speaks so much about really what the league wanted you know, whatever it was 15 years ago when they changed the rules. People are playing almost always four out and a lot now five out. You know, that's become the new trend. Boston, for instance, you know, we played them the other night, and they literally, uh, I'm not sure they played anybody who can't make a three with pretty good efficiency. So when you play like that, it changes all of the defense and it creates space for everybody on every catch. You know, so much of offense is, you know, who you're on the floor with and the shooting ability. You put one guy out there who can't shoot with range, that cuts down the space for everybody else. You play five guys who can shoot threes. Even at decent, you know, 34, 35, there's a lot more room for everybody. So, well, you know, what I teach you when you're a kid, you know, the basic tenant of offense is spacing. And if there's five guys out there that can shoot threes, there's going to be a lot of room for everybody to play. And, you know, that's a simplistic answer, but I think that's where it starts. This is no small thing. Whoever whoever um, ends up with the, like, for instance, threes made, we're at the other end. Our three-point defense has suffered. And I believe I'm right in this. And uh, threes made, I think that the top eight or nine or maybe even ten teams of three made what might be the top eight or nine or ten of all time. And the same with threes given up. Uh, the top, say, eight or nine, I know a month ago it was 14. The top 14 uh, teams in terms of threes made were going to be top 14 of all time. So it's a significant change. It's not a small, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not one or two teams. You know, it's, it's league-wide. I think the other part, uh, frankly, is, in my opinion, is everybody's switching, and I think you have to. We've we've done better here since we got away from switching, and I think that switching is a great thing. It helps your three-point defense. Um, 
but it only makes sense if you're switching and not giving up a really decided mismatch. You know, Golden State is made to switch. The Spurs are made to switch. They have so many really exceptional defenders that they can switch and everything's fine. But the majority of teams, as I watch more film, that's where the defense breaks down, you know, particularly when you're putting much uh, weaker defenders on primary scorers. So I, I actually think that in two years, the other part is I think there'll be a lot less switching also. All right. So, you know, one of the things that we heard Clifford talk about there is that he thinks that the NBA changed more during the season, during 2016-17 season, than it had during the season in any other year. And, you know, one of the big things he mentions there was the proliferation of the three-point shot, how there are record numbers of threes every season, and, you know, not just record numbers of threes, but, you know, multiple teams setting team records every season. The Hornets are now looking at a team where they have Dwight Howard, Cody Zeller, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. Are they going to be able to put together the types of lineups that he's talking about? Oh, definitely. Because while they have those three guys, they also have Marvin Williams, Kemba Walker. Uh, they just drafted Malik Monk. They... Uh, well, they have Marco Bellinelli. <laughs> They've always been a team that's uh, ever since their kind of offensive revolution a couple of years a couple of years ago. They've been a team that shoots a lot of three pointers, and they do it at a high volume. Maybe not as efficiently as a Warriors or as a uh, Spurs, but they are definitely one of the higher volume three point shooting teams in the league. And they found a decent mix of the they found a decent mix of players that can shoot the three pointer. They're probably going to go out this offseason and find some more like. That's something that they've always been able to do. That they've always been able to do since they changed to that offensive style, and it worked pretty well. So I think they'll. Oh, Batum, obviously. That was, <laughs> I was like, go. I'm forgetting someone obvious. I was like, I'm sure. forgetting someone really obvious here. Um, but yeah, they have a lot of guys that can shoot threes. Guys who aren't afraid to shoot off the dribble, which is that's the biggest change to me in my opinion. Is guys who are willing to shoot off the dribble because it used to be that players would never shoot off handoffs or off pick and roll dribbles. Like you could give them a little bit of space because like they weren't going to shoot that, and if they did, they were likely going to miss. Then Steph Curry changed everything because all of a sudden he makes everything off the dribble. And if you look last year, Kemba Walker was one of the leaders in guys who go, who come off the pick and roll and shoot off the dribble or shoot on pull-ups. And he was one of the leaders and percentages of that shot last year. So, yeah, Charlotte won't have any issues shooting, even if they're not running that exact five-out offense that uh, Steve Clifford was talking about. So you're not – there's – I mean, is there going to be a way to put Michael Kidd-Gilchrist and Dwight Howard on the floor at the same time? They found a way to run them, run those two together, run him and Al Jefferson at the same time. So I think they'll find a way. I think they might even be able to get a little more spacing, depending if uh, Howard's able to at least run to the rim on the pick and roll. Kid Gilchrist, he's not the best shooter. He's a better shooter than he was. Like he can at least shoot mid-range jumpers now. Okay. He does spot up in the corner and find. He finds ways to create spacing through cuts and attacking the rim, which that's helpful. He's never been the big spacing problem that a lot of people make him out to be. He's not great for it. Like, you can sag off on him a little. But Charlotte's found ways around that. They usually stick him on the weak side in the corner and make something and make use out of him there in some ways. Okay. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, struck me about Dwight, like, he works really hard, like, in terms of keeping his his body in shape. I mean, say what you will about Dwight, but there's no way he can look the way he looks at age, you know, 33 or 32 whatever it is for him is that right what's his age <laughs> i think the, i think 32 is right i'm gonna look 32. that up right now okay so like he's obviously a super hard worker with regard to you know training and things like that but he said on the radio the other day he'll be that, turning 32 next year okay or next season so he said that he's lost 14 pounds in the off season so that that weight change might help him with regard to style of play, especially on things like rim rolls. That that might be interesting to see. Can I just uh, note really quick that this is the earliest muscle watch we've ever had in an NBA offseason? Oh no, really? Like, like I'm sorry. Usually we go usually we go to training camp with uh with the I'm in the best shape of my life talk, but I saw some <laughs> uh I saw Joy Harris say he's down fourteen pounds. I saw something else the other day, I can't remember who it was. And Demarcus Cousins was uh there's a picture of him throw, floating around New Orleans right now where 
he's in the tank top looking skinnier than he looked in uh, Sacramento. So <laughs> everyone's on the weight watch right now, and like the season's barely over a, a week old, uh, finished. Wow, yeah, I, I would definitely not be the person to lose weight going to New Orleans. <laughs> right? Right? Um, that, that would be a cause would be... to gain weight. Oh, man, the Mufalettas, gumbo and everything. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to go back to New Orleans. <laughs> All right, well, the other thing Clifford talked about in that was he's talking about switching defenses, and that's not going to be something that, that's high in the priority list for the Hornets, correct? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, they, it's funny. They have a they have a system that doesn't really rely on switches, and they can do it, but they definitely prefer to uh, just kind of stick with their own guys to avoid any potential mismatches. They've never been one that switches very often. They can do it, which, if you look at the lineups they run, they definitely, especially on the wing, they definitely can match up with it. Like, they usually run – last year they were running Nicholas Batum, Michael K. Gilchrist, and Margaret Williams together a lot. And those three can switch on to any of the uh, their opposing defenders and be sure. perfectly fine as long as it's not one or five. Which So they don't do a lot of switching, and they can do it if they want, but I, I can see why Steve Clifford would say that uh, they don't really plan on doing much switching. I don't know if he's going to – at least that was last year. I don't know if that's going to go with this year because, like I said earlier – they really got burned by the new three-point shooting trend or how often teams are shooting three-pointers points, three pointers now. It kind of exposed their defense a little. So I'm wondering if we'll see a little bit of a philosophical change there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that the Hawks traded Dwight Howard, too, is that, you know, with this new general manager, Travis Schlink, you know, he's coming from the Warriors, and that was a thing that they did a lot of. And you heard Clifford mention that, you know, uh, that the Warriors did a lot of switching, and I think that the Hawks are going to do more of that. And Dwight didn't really fit the plan in that regard. And even if you look, yeah, at the he Hawks more contains draft, and sags than he does a uh, switch. Right, he's more of a you know protect the rim, drop back kind of player. And even like in the Hawks draft, they drafted John Collins, you know, and there I think there are some questions about his defense. I don't think there are really questions about his feet. I and mean, you watch him play, and he's got excellent feet. And I think you know he can be a good. A good switch player, you know, switching on to to some smaller people. I think he might fit what what Schlink ideally wants to get out of this defense. But one of the things that intrigued me a little bit and what Clifford said was he thought that in the next couple of years that switching would become less prevalent. Do you do you believe that? I mean, it seems to me like, you know, hearing the two things that Clifford said there, you know, talking about five out offenses and, you know, the rise of three point shooting, it seems to me like you'd want to do even more switching to try to counter that because that style of offense, you're not going to get pounded in the post and you might be better off, you know, having more mobile defenders trying to stick to three point shooters and, and you'd want people who could, could switch. Uh, do you think there's really going to be less switching two years from now than there is now? I thought that was a little strange to be honest. I'd, I'd be surprised if there was less switching, especially with just, that feels like it's the best counter to pick and roll, which is the most successful offensive plan. That like, it's amazing. Like someone came up with the idea of like, throw a screener here, and then have them go around it, and like defenses have never been able to properly like adjust to it. Like it's the best play basketball has ever created. Right. And I feel like switching is the best way to counter that. But maybe he knows something we don't about like <laughs> the way defenses are kind of going because they're definitely going to be a. There's definitely going to be a defensive switch because anytime there's an offensive revolution, there's a defensive revolution to counter. So maybe he's on to something about how switching lies and how switching actually leads to bigger problems eventually. I'm not entirely sure. Personally, I feel like we're going to see either the same amount of switches if not more to counter the three-point shooting, but maybe he's on to something that I'm not entirely sure of. But I respect to see Clifford. I'm going to have to disagree with him on that one. <laughs> All right. Which, yeah, I mean I- – like he, like he cares. Like he cares. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell him what you said. No. So don't please don't. <laughs> I'm gonna rat on you. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, uh, actually, funny, funny Steve Clifford story. Um, in my first couple of years of uh, doing summer league, which like my first actual events is going to a reporter. Last year was my second ever year doing summer league, and you know how sometimes you have like one of those moments, like, wow, I'm actually doing this as like a job. That's kind of cool, right? And like. Serious Steve Clifford, and I smiled at him, and I forgot to stop smiling. And I stared at him, and I realized this is really freaking awkward right now. <laughs> it's like I was like, I need to, 
I didn't stop doing this at this very moment. Like, this is awkward as hell. <laughs> so I really hope Steve Clifford does not remember who I am because that would be – or if he does, he doesn't remember that. <laughs> oh, but he's so nice. He's such, he uh, seems he's, like he's such too a nice guy. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, tell us how to find your work. Like, yeah, this... Oh, go ahead. He probably went off as like, man, this weird guy looked at me here. We got to <laughs> stop coming here, I swear. <laughs> well, I mean, it's or you said it was Orlando Summer League, right? Yeah, it was Orlando Summer League. It's just kind of cramped in there, and they play in that little tiny gym. It's, you oh, know, yeah, very cramped. He probably figures you could have been looking at something else with everybody just kind of mashed in there together. <laughs> Hopefully. So uh, tell us about your work, how we can find it, where to find you on Twitter, all that good stuff. Uh, you can find me writing at CBS NBA. That's where pretty much everything I write is. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I my Twitter account is at Chris Barmel, C-H-R-I-S-B-A-R-N-E-Wall. And that's basically the best places to find me right now. All right. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on to talk about the Dwight Howard trade. I, I hope you get the best version of Dwight. And uh, congratulations on uh, getting that full-time gig at CBS. I'm, I'm enjoying your work. Thank you. It's been really fun. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical.